we will be reading from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 21, and also verse 52. This is what Holy Scripture says. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius, the governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased." When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And now down to the last verse, verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and uh, you may open to Luke's gospel again. Luke, and I would like to look especially at verse 52, the last verse in Luke's gospel. If you are, like me, a 50-something, that's all you need to know, Anglo-Canadian who has had opportunity to travel internationally, you may have had an experience like this. You end up someplace in the world where the culture is foreign, everything feels different, and nobody speaks in English. And since you are 50-something and you took French in public school like I did, the extent of your international language skills consists of garçon and come see, come ça. And that's about as far as it goes. And then some crisis hits 
and you panic, you're in despair, you're in a foreign land, you don't know what to do, you can't find anybody that understands your problem, and then you hear it. You hear the familiar sound of English. And there is this person that meant nothing to you moments ago that now means everything to you. They're gonna solve your problem. You had not even noticed this person before, but they have now become the most important person in the world to you. There is a bond, an immediate friendship. This one can help me. And help you, we hope they do. And they can help you because in many ways they are just like you. There are a lot of situations in life where finding somebody just like you enables a way out of your predicament. We've already read the account of Jesus' birth from Luke chapter two. It ends with this verse, Jesus increased, verse 52, in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now that's a very human verse, isn't it? He became just like us. It may surprise you to know that, or to learn that the earliest heresies that plagued the church, we're talking like 140 AD to 190 AD, were not people uh, uh, um, attacking the deity of Jesus Christ. All the initial heresies were about the humanity of Jesus Christ. The Marcionites, 140 AD, were insisting that Jesus was just a spiritual entity that sort of appeared in bodily form. The Docetists later on, 190 AD, they said, you know what, there wasn't even any physicality to it at all. He was just an illusion. God was playing a trick on us. And so the early church did not struggle with believing that Jesus was God. The temptation for the early church was to downplay or to reject the humanity of Christ, that he was God in the flesh, in real flesh and blood. And this verse at the end of Luke 2 is so important in this regard because essentially it describes the normal maturation process of any typical human being. In fact, we have every reason to believe that when Luke wrote it this way, he was pointing us back to the boy Samuel. Uh, you can read in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 26. Just listen to it. See how familiar it sounds. Now, the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. Luke 2, 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Those verses are almost identical, aren't they? Now, this Samuel, Old Testament, he had a very unique nativity story as well. His mother, Hannah, couldn't get pregnant. She'd been trying for many years. She goes to the temple. She pours out her heart to God, and she says, if you give me a son, I will give him to you. I'll devote him to temple service. That's exactly what happened. She became pregnant. It was miraculous because she was an older woman, and she gave birth to a son, and then she, once she weaned the child, she took him to the temple. She devoted him to the temple. And my point in bringing up Samuel is to draw your attention to that one verse. Now, the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. That sounds very, very normal. <laughs> Nobody would read that verse and suggest that 
just because of Samuel's unique conception and unique birth and unique ministry that Samuel was not a human. He grew physically. He grew taller. He grew relationally. He grew in favor with man. He grew spiritually. He grew in favor with Yahweh, with God. In fact, we look at that summary for Samuel and we say, hey, kids, that's what we hope for all of you, too. We, we want you to get bigger. Now, I prefer you don't get as tall as I am because I like being the second tallest person in the church. I will note that for 21 years, I was the tallest so that was rudely interrupted. Uh, but we want you kids to get bigger. We want you to grow. And then we want to grow in relationship with you. We want to know you and we want you to know us. And we want you to know God. We want you to know God and his grace and his favor. And of course, just like Samuel, if you're a kid, you too have to turn to God in faith. Samuel grew up in the same temple as Hophni and Phinehas. And Hophni and Phinehas were the sons of the high priest, and they were evil men. So it's not growing up in church that's going to save you, kids. Samuel grew up in the temple, and he grew to love the Lord and believe on the Lord. Hophni and Phinehas grew up in the same temple, and they hated God. I love praying for all you kids and one of the things I like to pray is that you'd be just like Samuel, whether you're a boy or a girl, you'd be just like Samuel. He was eager to listen to God's word. He was faithful to do the things God said to do. And one day he had faith in God as his savior. And I hope that will be true for you too. Now let's get thinking about Jesus again when he was a boy. This is back in Luke 2. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, here's my question for you, those of you who love Christmas and all those things. If Jesus is God, which I think we've adequately proved over the last couple of weeks, how on earth can he grow or change Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and man. And one of the most important things we know about God from our Bibles is what theologians call his immutability. He is unchanging. He can't get any better because he's the ultimate best. He can't get, any, he can't get bad because then he would not be God. He is immutable. He is unchanging in all of his perfections and in his glory. So we read Psalm 102. Of old you have laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They'll wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. He is immutable, he is eternal. So maybe you're starting to feel the rub a little bit because if Jesus is God, how can he grow or increase in anything? That was puzzling to a lot of early adopters of the Christian faith, some of whom proved that they weren't truly Christians at all because they just said, well, we, the only answer to that riddle is that he wasn't really a human. You see? Like, we'll just, we'll just deny his humanity. Especially if you toss in a verse like Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the only possible, the only viable explanation for this 
The only way these verses make sense is that not only is Jesus God, he is also truly human as well. In his divinity, he remains unchanging. In his humanity, he grows. He is the God-man. He was, he was born an infant after his miraculous conception in Mary's virgin womb. He, he remained God, but he was human. And in his humanity, he needed his mother's milk. He needed the care and protection of human parents. He needed to learn how to eat, how to talk, how to walk, how to read, how to relate to other human beings. All things human, he had to learn. So in his humanity, there was a lot of change or increase or growth that needed to take place. He was, in this sense, no different than baby Samuel, who had to increase in wisdom, stature, and the knowledge of relationship with God. Now that word increased in Luke 2.52, often translated in your Bible as go forward or advance or move ahead, and that's precisely what the baby Jesus needed to do. He had to advance in, in all the ways any human infant needed to advance. He had to advance physically. He had to get grow in stature. He had to advance cognitively. He had to grow in wisdom. He had to advance relationally in favor with men. He had to advance spiritually in favor with God. And and this is because he was truly human, really human, in every facet of humanity except one. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin. He was all man except for that one thing. He never sinned. In that way, he was entirely unlike every other human ever born or to be born. But in every other way, he was just like you. He was just like us. He was a real man, a real human. And that turns out to be critical in our relationship with God. Let's think about this under three uh, headings. First of all, he was born into this world as a real man only without sin. If you, if you like following along, there's a little outline in your song sheet there. This is the first one. He was born into this world as a real man, only without sin. Now, we saw the without sin part last week, so I want to focus more precisely on the human part. What is a human? Well, our Bible tells us that a human being is a, is a being that is made up of body and soul. There's an outside you and an inside you, and they are one in, in union, right? Uh, so this is Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, in other words, a body, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, a soul, a spirit, and the man became a living creature, a human being. And like that first man, Adam, The man Jesus had both body and soul. He was a human from the moment of his conception. He had a a body. He possessed a real human body. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children, that's you and me, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, the same flesh and blood. And although it's somewhat gruesome, All you have to do is look at the cross to see that his body was a real body. 
After his death, John wrote, John 19, verse 31, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs, the legs of the crucified, might be broken, that they might be taken away. You break legs of a crucified person because they can no longer push up in order to enable breathing. So it creates immediate suffocation. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him, the two criminals. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. I'm reading this to help us think about the the reality of the body of Jesus, He had legs that could be broken. They weren't, but they could have been. He had real lungs that stopped breathing. That real body of Jesus contained blood, and presumably from the congestive heart failure that would result from crucifixion, um, when his side is pierced, that's the fluid, the water and the blood that flows out from his side. When his actual skin is punctured with a spear, It was not a spirit or a ghost or an illusion or an apparition that was hanging on the cross. Real men came and they they took his body down and they put that real body in a tomb. So human beings have bodies. This man Jesus has a body. Real real humans have a soul. This man, Jesus, has a soul. Uh, We know this because his soul was in anguish. Matthew 26, my soul is very sorrowful, he said, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. But look at what Jesus says there. It's my soul. Jesus is acknowledging by his own admission, I have a soul. In other words, Jesus understood himself to be truly human, a man even though he was God. No wonder that Jesus can look at other human beings and say to them in all honesty, John 8, verse 40, now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Self-identifies as a man. I'm a man. I am a human. That's who's preached to you. Jesus is saying, I am, I am truly a human being. I am not an imposter. I'm not an apparition. I'm not a fake. I am just as much a man as any other man ever. Now, when you're lost in Bolivia or Bulgaria or Bangladesh, you don't look for a dog or a tree to help you. You look for another human being. And it is one of the comforts of our soul that God sent a real man into the world to help us. And of course, the rest of the Bible affirms this. He experienced very human things. This is number two. He lived his life as a real human, only without sin. So so all the, the natural limitations of being human belonged to Jesus. He never sinned, so there was something spiritually different about him. But when it came to getting hungry or tired or discouraged... He knew all of those things. How about hunger? Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, this is at his temptation, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was what? Hungry. He was hungry. 
So apparitions and ghosts don't get hungry. 40 days of fasting left Jesus longing for something to eat. That is human. 40 minutes of not eating leaves me something hungry. Uh, What is hunger? It's that built-in human craving for nourishment of our bodies. Jesus got hungry. He was hungry. He also got tired. Uh, In John's gospel, we read this interesting account of Jesus and his disciples making a really long trek into the area of Samaria, which is north of Israel. They walked there. It's the kind of long hike that tires you out if you're human. So John chapter four, verse six, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. So you, gotta, you just gotta like let your brain go here for a minute. We know that God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. All power begins with God. But Christ, in his humanity, could run out of steam. He even grew tired enough to sleep through a massive storm in the boat. Do you remember that? This is Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. What day? Long day of healing people, teaching. Long, long day. Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, with the, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, that's the back of the boat, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And of course, he, he did a great miracle, but I'm just pointing out, Like, if you've been in a boat in rough water, you probably were not sleeping unless you were exhausted. And he was clearly exhausted. In his divinity, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 121, verse 4. But in his real humanity, Jesus, Jesus needed to crash. That means that Jesus experienced some of the limitations of being human while never ceasing to be fully divine. In 1963, Randy Gardner, a teenager, uh, wanted to get into the Guinness Book of World Records. And so he thought, uh, he, he went for the record of staying up, not sleeping, 11 days in a row. Went a little loopy. Uh, that's, that's like, but that was it, man. Like nobody, nobody should could stay up longer than that. The the body just needs sleep, right? Jesus sometimes spent the night in prayer, but that was occasional. Most nights, he had to do what you got to do. You just go to bed, sleep. He's a real man. How about sorrow? I mentioned this verse earlier from uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, talking about how Jesus had a human soul, but look at what he says. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Sorrow is a very human emotion. He had other human emotions, perhaps some that you wouldn't expect him in particular to have. How about outrage? Back in John's gospel, there's this really long account of one of Jesus' friends. He gets news that this guy's gonna die, and so Jesus purposefully delays going. The man who could have healed him delays waits four days, and then travels to go and raise Lazarus from the dead. Before he gets there, he tells his disciples, Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to raise him. They thought, like, 
he'd fallen asleep, but he, was, he meant sleep in the sense of he is, he's died. So that's why Jesus is going there. It's a fascinating event. But one part in that story that's often misunderstood, so you might want to perk up at this a little bit, because sometimes I hear it even around here, are the people's understanding of Jesus' emotions in, in that event. Because he stood there looking at the tomb, everybody's crying, and John says, when Jesus saw her weeping, one of Lazarus's sisters, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, deeply moved in his spirit. That's kind of our English way of like feeling uncomfortable with the word that's there, so we're trying to just make it a little more hallmark. <laughs> uh, because deeply moved in spirit is, is anger. He was outraged. He was emotionally indignant. That's what the word means. We read it the way it is in our English Bible sometimes. It sounds like, oh, he was so touched. He was so touched, moved in spirit by this. But that's not what John was saying. John's saying, no, he was, he was outraged. We, can, we know that for sure because of the next word. He says he was greatly troubled. He was moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Greatly troubled is the idea of being weighed down with concern over something. Greatly troubled is the word Jesus used at the Last Supper when he's pondering Judas and his imminent betrayal. Well, it's the word John used to describe him. He said Jesus was troubled, greatly troubled in his spirit. Truly, truly, one of you will betray me. So here... Outside Lazarus' tomb, Jesus looks on all of it, the death of Lazarus, the unbelief of the crowds, the fake mourning, and it says in John eleven thirty five, 35, he wept. But these were not the tears of losing a close friend. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead in moments. These are the tears of sorrow and sadness at such darkness and unbelief. He was internally outraged, weighed down, disturbed by the whole ugly mess of sin and death. And then he calls Lazarus out of the grave and ain't nobody weeping no more. There was more indignation in the life of Jesus when they brought the little children to him that he might touch them and the disciples rebuked the parents presumably. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and he said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Indignant means incensed, offended, angry at his disciples. That means that Jesus knew how to do what the apostle Paul commanded all of us Christians when he said, be angry and do not sin. Anger is not always sin. There is a righteous anger. It is not in and of itself sinful. There's a way to be sinlessly angry, and Jesus did that. And of course, God himself expresses wrath, we understand that, but there was something particularly human about this indignation. It was provoked by the mistreatment of little children right in front of him, and he grows indignant. And then there's all the positive emotions. I just figure you're more familiar with those. Uh, his love for people, even the rich young ruler who walks away unbelieving. Luke says, and Jesus felt a love for him. He experienced joy. How about compassion? Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, when he went to shore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. In his humanity, when he was interacting with helpless, needy people, Jesus often felt compassion. That's a very good and a very human emotion. It means to be inwardly compelled to do something about the problems and the needs before him. 
I'm saying all of this to argue that Jesus had both constituent parts of being a real human being. He had body and he had soul. And he demonstrated this by all, living through all the normal experiences and feelings and responses of a normal human being. Things like compassion, indignation, joy, love, sleep, uh, fatigue, hunger. He was a man, truly a man. And trust me, you want that to be true because if he was not truly man and truly God, if he was either one of those things and not the other, if he was somehow only man or only God, he couldn't save anybody. Last week we concluded that it takes God to bring us to God. Today I'm proposing it takes a human to die in the place of other humans. This is the third and the last point. Only a sinless man could save you. Only a sinless man could save you. This gets to the heart of it, really. Think of it this way. If you know the Old Testament, God's dealings with the nation of Israel, think of all the bulls and goats and pigeons and bushels of wheat and everything else that was brought to an altar where it was burned and consumed again and again and again for year after year, decade after decade, century after century, people, they just keep coming and they keep bringing their payment for sins. It was never enough. That's exactly what the writer to the Hebrews was getting at in Hebrews chapter 10 when he said the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, The law can't make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? All the the sacrifices, when they stopped, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs and the rest, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. So this is the logic. Bulls and goats, because of the relationship God had with Israel, bulls and goats could tide you over for a time but you'd be back again. Why was that? It was because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. God told Adam, if you sin, you will die. Adam sinned, Adam eventually died. And every single one of his descendants died. Why? Because we, because they, they were, we were all born under the curse. We sin because we were born sinners. The Bible is very clear. When a man sins, a man has to die. There is no other payment, if you will, that is acceptable. That is the equation. You cannot buy salvation with money. You cannot earn salvation by being good. You cannot steal salvation by deception. You cannot get salvation by being plunked in a water tank. 
You need to die for your sins because that is the unalterable and eternal equation that God established with the first man, Adam. And while all those animal sacrifices made over and over again in some measure dealt with sins, they could not fully deal with sins because those were just sheep and goats and bulls dying in the place of humans. They were not equivalent. They were insufficient in an ultimate sense and they were only ever always pointing forward to the one and final and sufficient payment. If a human sins, then the human must die. That's the equation. If you sin, you must die. Unless another dies in your place and you can appropriate all the justice and grace of that death to yourself by faith. Hallelujah. That takes us finally to Hebrews chapter two. It's right there in your bulletin. Look at what he says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, the people who believe like Abraham believed. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that means to appease the wrath of God for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What I want you to look at here is verse 14 and verse 17. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And then about in the middle of the paragraph, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Verse 17 makes crystal clear what verse 14 implied. There is a necessary consequence. Because we are human, he had to become human in order to save us. A human sinned, therefore a human must die. In other words, it would have been insufficient for Christ to come to earth as, if we can say this, only God in order to save us. It had to be one of our race who stood in our place. And that person, that substitute, had to be sinless. You see, that is why only Jesus can save you. It's a part of what Paul was getting at in his letter to the Philippians. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, like he, he couldn't let go of the glories of heaven. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came to earth in order to substitute himself for us and to be the real sacrifice, the real substitute. He had to be a real human. Being born in the likeness of men, 
that does not mean looking like a man while really only being God. No, that's, that likeness word comes right from Genesis chapter one. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God made man in his own image. And mystery of mysteries, Christ came in that likeness when he was born of the virgin. He was truly human. And it is in that sense that he is able to become our substitute. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. And body here in this text means real man, real human. He, remaining fully divine, became fully human, fully man, so that he might die in our place and make a way for us to be saved, which is why the apostle Paul says to Timothy, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. That, my friends, is the heart of it. God the Son became a man so that he might serve as our ransom. His life, his human life, in exchange for ours. He died in our place. He lived a perfect life in our place as a real man. While we were still sinners, still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is why the Apostle Paul goes on to say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus, the human, is Lord, is God, and believe in your heart that God, his Father, raised him from the dead, you will be saved. A Christian. A Christian is a human who looks to the God-man, Jesus Christ, and says, there is my substitute. There is the man who lived the life of perfect obedience to God that I never did live nor ever could live. There's the man who remained sinless and therefore could be what all those previous spotless sacrificial lambs pointed toward. There's the man who became cursed for us. There's the man who was made sin even though he knew no sin so that I might become the righteousness of God. There's the man who took all our sin and all our guilt upon himself and gave me all of his perfect obedience to his father. There's the human my heavenly father sees when he looks at me, the perfect man, the sinless man. Friend, if you plan, if, if your plan after your most certain death is to stand before God in your manhood, in, in your humanity, in all the successes of your human existence, then I warn you that all you're going to bring to the judgment seat of God are sins and failings and weakness and guilt. The only way to survive that day is to stand behind another man. 
a sinless man, a strong man, an innocent man, a perfect man, the son of man. In that day, in that foreign land of glory where God will sit in judgment, you want to have somebody who can speak your language and guide you to safety. Someone just like you except entirely unlike you. And he's there. And he is here for you now. The one who left the glories of heaven to be born of a human babe as a human babe. The one who was laid in a manger with years ahead of him to increase in stature and wisdom and grace so that he might become the sinless savior of the world. No angel could die for you. They don't have any sins. Couldn't die for you because they're angels. You needed a human, another human, another man. Emmanuel, God with us, has come. There are no other saviors. There will never be another savior. You need this savior. Turn to him. Put your faith for eternal life in him and be saved from your sins. Do you, do you hear that familiar voice? That familiar language? Like the sound of English when you're desperate in a foreign land? My dear friend, that's the voice and language of love. It's better than English. And the one who is speaking is right here within your grasp. Turn from your sins and turn to the one who's come to give his life for people like you. You believe on him, you will be saved. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. So our God, we pray that we would continue to delight in Jesus, our great Savior, and that you, by your great grace, would do your good work by your Holy Spirit in the heart of each. And I pray for any friends who are here who have never laid hold by faith on you, Christ, that by your Holy Spirit, you would bring life and salvation even now. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.